We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Hi there, everyone. Just a few quick announcements before we get to an awesome adult improver interview with Alex Crompton. Um, number one, uh, Harvard is doing a study on how chess players learn. If you're over the age of 50, you're eligible. Um, as you guys know, I'm often saying I wish we had more data on this stuff. So this is not a paid advertisement. When someone reaches out and they're trying to advance the field in this area, I'm always happy to help to help out. So to be eligible for this study, you must be over the age of 50, an active member of the U.S. Chess Federation, and have played in a rated game since 2019. All that you do if you do participate in the study is a 30-minute virtual interview with Harvard researchers. So if you're interested in participating, just Google Harvard Chess Study, and you'll be able to register for it from their website. Um, announcement number two is that next week's uh, interview will be a bit late. We're going to do a world... Um, championship recap, of course. And I have a grandmaster guest already lined up that I'm excited for. But we don't know exactly when the world championship will end. So whereas normally perpetual chess comes out like clockwork on Tuesdays at 7am New York time. Um, 
this one will be subject to the whims of when Magnus and Nepo finish their match. Whenever it's over, we will record probably the next day, and it'll be out shortly thereafter. Um, and number three, just a reminder, you'll hear Alex and I talk about this, but again, there's not much world championship talk other than Alex discussing a bit about how he has a bit of trouble relating to these elite players uh, when he tries to follow the broadcast. But obviously, if you want the breaking news, uh, listen to the bonus pods first and please come back for this one later because it's a fun interview. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Adult Improver edition of Perpetual Chess. Sorry, it has been a little bit longer in between Adult Improver interviews than usual. There is uh, more art than science to the spacing of guests, and it was just, just worked out that way. But I'm excited for this one, and of course, we'll get you more of them soon. And for those who have not heard this format of interview, it's uh, instead of uh, interviewing a grandmaster or a distinguished author or content creator, um, you know... I, our guests who are adult improvers may have been some of those things, but the main thing we're looking for is people who've made good strides and shared good uh, learning ideas about chess. And our guest this week is a 30-year-old uh, Queen's Gambit convert to chess. So I think this is going to be a good bit of sort of counter-programming to the World Championship, which is uh, ongoing as we record this. There is a dull draw, probably, in progress, and will still be ongoing when this interview comes out a week later. Um, but anyway, our guest was the first employee at a successful startup called Entrepreneurs First. And when he saw Queen's Gambit, got bitten by the chess bug. He wrote a great blog post summarizing sort of his learning experience, but basically he had a sort of familiar for many people, I believe, baptism by fire, where he initially uh, was um, planning on challenging in this world championship match, but then discovered that uh, that chess can be quite difficult. So he got very regimented very quickly about learning chess, and he's, I believe, about a year into his journey and rated about 1,500 both uh, if you convert the ECF rating, as well as chess.com rapid. So um, not as far into his chess journey as a lot of the people that we interview, but I thought that that's why he would make a great guess because he picked up chess and has been very regimented. And I was really impressed with uh, all of the learning tools that he found along the way. Um, and uh, our guest is also a podcaster and an excellent writer and a uh, language studier. So I'm uh, curious to weave those things in as well. But first, let's welcome Alex Crompton to the show. Alex, how are you? Hey, Ben. I'm really good. I am ticking off a bucket list item by being on this show, having listened to many, many episodes uh, uh, in the course of this year. So, uh, yeah, it's really, really cool to talk to you. Thanks. Well, it's always nice to interview a fellow podcaster because you're like, yeah, I have a whole studio at home. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. And, and we've got to give a shout out to Geert Vandervelt of Chessable. You and I, he and he and I both came across your blog post and Geert, uh, and of course I, I made a note. I was like, oh, I should interview Alex at some point, but Geert pinged me right away. And he was like, let's get Alex on how to chess and, and perpetual chess. Um, and uh, how to chess will be back. We have a bunch of interviews recorded, um, but we figured we'd do perpetual chess first um, since we do not have a bunch of interviews recording in, in perpetual chess. And of course we will keep the ideas shared uh, separate, but uh, looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And now, Alex, before we dive into the adult improvement aspect, um, I, before we started recording, you were talking about how when the, the world championship is ongoing, you sometimes find it a bit difficult to follow. And I feel like um, that may be relatable for a lot of people. So, 
before we dive into that, could you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, so I, I was trying to watch the Judith Polgar um, commentary live, um, and I just, I think, you know, one of the things that makes chess so interesting to play, but so difficult to watch is just that it, it, you you basically can't follow along with what the best people are actually doing um, unless you are them, right? So I assume that like there is all, always, even for Judith Polgar, some sort of margin of error between her thought process and say Magnus process or whatever. And so, you know, I'm watching the broadcast and they basically just reel off these lines in their head, like move, 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 obviously better. And it's like completely impossible for me, given that I like basic, I know the coordinates if I'm given a few seconds, but I can't like, I just can't do that kind of calculation, uh, like not visually at least. Um, yeah. So it's definitely really difficult to follow. Um, yeah, which I guess is why, yeah, we talked about it as well. Like, you know, people like Gotham have such a massive audience because he makes it feel like you can at least participate in some of the thought processes that, that really good players have. Yeah, Levy does do an amazing job doing that. And as I mentioned to you again before we were recording, the I think the, the best uh, broadcast team for people, you know, rated, say, uh, around Alex's level, 1,500 online or lower is probably... Um, uh, Jovan Kahowska, David Howell, and Kaya Snare, um, who do the coverage for Eurosport, because they're because they're used to presenting uh, for a uh, you know sports network, not necessarily just a uh, chess show. I think they do the best job explaining the ideas. But I'll also tell you, Alex, it's funny that chess chess broadcasting has come a long way. So <laughs> if, you, if you think it's uh you know if you think it's like um, incompatible now um, or like hard to hard to decipher you should have seen it like 20 years 20 25 <laughs> years ago um but totally understandable and uh it's good that you're still interested in like sort of the the pageantry and uh the you know the history of like who's gonna make history here but as you say sometimes uh the best thing to do is just watch a game recap of the presenter of your choice and get the uh the key points um, i think it's um there's a, there's a really interesting sort of um, difference in some sports for me. Um, like one is like, is it a spectator sport or is it, is it a player sport? And um, I think I, I used to do a lot of um, something called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is like submission grappling. So it's a bit like wrestling, but it kind of keeps going until one person is either going to essentially like have a limb broken or get choked unconscious. And then that's who wins. Um, and it's like actually remarkably similar to chess in a sense that like, Essentially, when you watch the best people play um, or compete, you as a you can't even really understand the sophistication of what they're doing because you can't see all the you can't see all the things that they they avoided by like a like a, a particular movement or like a particular um, plan, and so it's really. I think that's like one of the like it's been one of the challenges for submission grappling as a sport to grow but i think it's also probably one of the challenges for chess as a sport to grow is like how how do you how do you make something that um that is hard yeah hard as a spectator to actually understand um feel really exciting whereas if you compare that with like soccer or um I mean, maybe to an extent, American football suffers from this. I'm not sure. I, I can't get my head around it. But when you certainly when you compare it to soccer, it's clear when someone does something really brilliant. It's like 
amazingly obvious because it's just so like visual, visually spectacular. Um, but yeah, I think that's like one of the hardest things about chess is like, uh, and, and, you know, other sports, which are really fascinating to, to do. It's not necessarily as interesting to watch because you just can't, unless you really fully understand what makes it brilliant. Yeah. Are you familiar with uh, Josh Waitskin? Did you come across him in your yeah. year of programming I, chess? Um, I actually read his book, what is it, Art of the Learning? Art of I learning. Think. Yeah. Yeah. I read it a few years ago. Um, I wasn't that convinced by his book, to be honest. I thought it was basically just like, I don't know. I, I, thought, it was, I, I thought it was less content and more just like, I'm a really smart guy, uh, was the gist Which of it. Which he is, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And, and for listeners who don't know, I mean, most listeners will probably have heard of Josh Waitzkin. He was an American prodigy from my generation. And the reason I mention him is because he transitioned to being a world-class Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner mm. and wrote this book, The Art of Learning, about it, um, which... I mean, I'm, you know, I'd give that book a nine out of 10. I feel like anytime you're going to do like a X is like Y book, there's going to be some sort of tortured metaphors along the way. It's, yeah, it's yeah. unavoidable. But as you say, he's a, he's a brilliant guy and it's a, a very, um, a very worthwhile read. The other point I wanted to highlight from what you were saying is that this, this quote by a uh, grandmaster Rustam Kashimjanov, who uh, previously was a uh, Fabiano Caruana second, he said during the previous world championship match that even when it comes to the preparation, he said it's like an iceberg, like 99% of, uh, of what takes place doesn't see the light of day. Like you, you don't see all of the sort of battle within the battle. So it's pretty apt of you to pick up on that. And so that's true in the opening phase. But as you say, it's also true. Um, it's also true more broadly. Like as we record, this is in the middle of game four. Um, and it, it looks like it's probably, it was a Petrov for listeners who are, you know, trying to think back. Um, it was a Petrov and Magnus, you know, it's probably going to be a draw unless he pulls some magic or one of them pulls some magic or blunders. But basically, it looks like I can already see that people are going to be saying, why did Magnus go into this line? But, you know, this might have been a very low probability outcome in terms of like what he expected. And like, it is what it is. And it's early in the match. But anyway, let's get to your adult improvement. So um, I thought that it might be fun since you wrote such an excellent piece and clearly put a lot of thought into it. I thought that it might be fun, Alex, if you, we begin by you reading the first uh, three paragraphs of your essay um, or the first four paragraphs. I guess I can just stop you. But let's set the stage with your first four paragraphs, um, ending with the one that begins after 500 Blitz games. And I did warn you for this, so hopefully you have it uh, queued up. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, like most people, late last year I watched The Queen's Gambit, and like most people, I made a chess.com account assuming I'd become the new Beth Harmon. Unfortunately, more than literally almost everyone, I sucked at chess. And at first this was unsurprising, I only vaguely knew what the pieces did, and I didn't know more complicated rules like castling. But I'm a smart guy, cue my white male privilege. Um, I thought if I had just brushed up on the rules and played a few games, I'd be being Bobby Fischer in no time. And so I did. Uh, and in December, I played about 500 games of Blitz, um, which was around an hour a day. Uh, I used lockdown as my excuse. And uh, what did I learn? I learned that I suck at chess, absolutely suck. Um, I wasn't even bad for a beginner. I was one of the worst people in the world. Um, after 500 Blitz games in December, my ELO rating was 328. Um, 
which out of the regulars on chess.com, about 11 million people didn't even make fifth percentile, um, which means that 95% of the people who have played Blitz on chess.com were better than me. And worse still, I wasn't even improving. I was getting worse because 328 was on January 1st, which is um, after my sort of introductory month of Blitz. So, yeah, I guess I did actually want to sort of also just massively caveat this whole episode because I am without doubt the worst person, the worst chess player, uh, maybe not the worst person, but certainly the worst chess player to ever be on the podcast. Um, And so, um, yeah, I mean, my, you know, I'm also extrapolating from my learnings as a data point of one um, uh, and, you know, with some, with some hopefully exciting progress, but also like, yeah, I mean, it's like blind leading the blind, right? I'm genuinely not good at this game. <laughs> well, well, the reason, I mean, the the reason what piqued my interest most in your blog post is how how into the science of it you got, and you linked to a lot of uh, articles. Um, so while it's you know while it's true that you're you're newer to chess than most of the adult improvers that I've interviewed, my hope is that even people like much further along in in their their chess adventure, um, you know, will be able to learn from this because again, you took such a sort of systemic approach and, and that's, that's why I think this could be helpful for people. You know, most people listening probably will been playing chess for longer than you have, whether or not they're at a higher uh, competitive level, but I love the sort of scientific approach. So once you did realize, like, let's pick up the story from where that blog post leaves off, Alex, once you did realize, okay, it turns out that I'm, you know, I'm, I've got a long way to go. I guess we could put it that way. Um, when did you just, when did you become regimented? When did you say, okay, I got to start just, I got to stop just like sort of hacking around here and I have to make some sort of plan? Yeah. Um, good question. I think, um, I think it was when it was just sort of, it, it sort of dawned on me that like without a shadow of a doubt, I was a, just like really bad at the game, but also just not it wasn't it wasn't like clicking or something i think you assume when you do something a lot that there'll be the there'll there'll be a moment when it just sort of like starts to organically fit together and if anything i was just getting worse and so presumably i was just like developing lots of bad habits etc etc and um and i think really frankly that just like massively affected my ego because like obviously chess is like associated with intellectual capability and I spent like certainly most of my adult life trying to, you know, like most people be successful in the world or whatever. And so in some, to, to some degree, it kind of, yeah, it made me just think, wow, if I like can't actually ever get good at this, does that just make me an idiot? Um, and yeah, and given that my, given that just playing loads of games doesn't make me better at all. Um, I just, decided that I had to like, you know, take an active role in trying to get better rather than um, just hoping that I would through playing those games. Um, So yeah, probably sometime in January, um, I was just like, okay, well, let's figure out what to actually do. And did did you consider door number two and just saying, screw it, I'm I'm not going (laughs) to. Yeah, 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 for sure. And actually, to be honest, I kind of already done that earlier in my life because, um, I remember we had like a chess set in my house when I was a kid and um, I'd like played a few games and stuff with my parents, which is kind of like, I remember like roughly how the piece pieces moved, but I remember it was like one of those things where 
I pretty quickly realized that I was I was bad then. Um, and so, you know, I almost like I basically just decided I was like never going to play chess um, <laughs> from the moment that I was a child. And and so I, I think I just always in my head had this thing of like, oh, I just I was just bad at that. And so, um, uh, yeah, I kind of didn't want to quit again, um, really. Um, and I think also I felt more empowered as a adult because I'd learn from other things, strategies to get better at stuff. Whereas I think when you're a kid, you're just like, oh, I'm not good at this or I'm good at this. And you just kind of lean into the things that you're good at and lean out of the things you're bad at. Whereas as an adult, you can say like, hey, no, this is like a decision and I'm going to decide to be good at this thing. Um, Excellent. All right. I mean, I, I want to follow up on that, but uh, first we're going to take a quick break and uh, hear from our sponsors. Listeners, we've got a new chess improvement focus sponsor. It is a mobile app called ChessViz. It has a unique approach to puzzles that helps you visualize. You solve puzzles in future positions by inputting it on the app. There's also blindfold chess uh, that you can play blindfold against engines of different levels. There's a big opening explorer database. Uh, tons of cool features that you can check out. Most of the features are free and advanced features are available for $3 a month, which can be discounted further if you get an annual or perpetual subscription subscription. So if you're interested in checking it out, go to the website chessviz with an s.com. And from there, you'll see download links for iPhone or Android. And yeah, just give it a try and see if you like it. That's chessviz.com. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by ChessMood.com. ChessMood was founded in 2018 by Grandmaster Avtik Gregorian. It's a chess education platform that gives you a structured path to work to improve your chess. For $29 a month, you get instant access to over 200 hours of Grandmaster prepared video content and includes openings, middle games, and end games. They also have an active online community where you can find training partners and fellow chess enthusiasts. Uh, don't forget to check out their free content. They have a great blog where their grandmasters share uh, their own thoughts on chess improvement. I get it delivered to my inbox. So to learn more about uh, Chess Mood and what they offer, be sure to check out their website, chessmood.com. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. And, and we are back. So Alex, as we left it, you had just said that you picked up from other fields. Now, I having read your blog post, I, I have some guesses. But so what fields did you feel like um, sort of um, um, you could draw on when when you rediscovered chess and said, Okay, I'm gonna make a go of this? Yeah, so the first, the first thing for me was just la language learning. Um, I think it was actually maybe it was a guest on your podcast or something um, but so, someone kind of alerted me to, to the idea that chess was like a, a kind of almost like a spatial language and um i think there's a lot of things in language learning which um have evolved over time like really really powerful tools um and ideas 
um, which can be applied to chess. And um, and so I think that was the kind of easiest starting point for me. Um, that yeah. So I mean, I can go into some of the some of the kind of like yeah, the, those comparisons if you like. Uh, let's go back to that later. For now, let's okay. let's um, talk about. So once you did sort of say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna be more um, systematic about how I approach this. Um, what were your first steps? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think the first thing was to try and understand like what is it that it actually means to be good at chess. So um, I basically probably just did some like. If, if I remember correctly, some sort of like amateur Google scholaring, which, you know, is like, what is it, what, it, what actually is a good chess player? Like, is that, because we all have these ideas in my, in your head, right? You know, maybe they have a certain amounts of knowledge, maybe, you know, what is it? I basically just wanted to understand like, you know, what, what actually makes people good or bad? And um, the, sort of, the sort of gist of that turned out to be, um, I guess, kind of, kind of disheartening in a sense which is that um and i think someone pointed this out on your podcast before but basically the better a chess player is the more likely their first candidate move is to be good and yeah. then then with calculation the quality of the move increases proportionally and so it seems as if basically stronger chess players just intuit the intuit better moves to begin with and then are able to like reason proportionally from there and, and and this probably like this probably also rhymed with some of my experience because it seems like and this is still true now like seems like basically as someone who had basically never played chess before until I was um, uh, twenty nine um, things like bullet and stuff where I'm basically just playing on intuition really quickly I just terrible at. Um, and so the sort of longer the time control, the more the sort of calculation and reasoning seems to kind of um, s like s subsidize my like naturally poor intuitions, if you like. So, yeah, that was the kind of first um, first thing I did was just like, OK, what is it that makes people good, makes me bad? And it just turned out that I just have all I just have no intuitions about what good moves might be. So, you know, you look at the board and you, you know that like E4 might be a good move. And to start with, and I just obviously didn't know that. Um, and so, um, and, that, and that applies in kind of all different kinds of contexts, you know, whether it's like tactics or openings or whatever, just have to like learn that from scratch, right? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I enjoyed reading you mentioned that in your blog because it's something that, that does come up on the podcast a lot. I and the guests are often preaching like kind of uh, below your level um, blitz and especially bullet, but even blitz can be counterproductive. And, and I do always want to caveat that by I fully, uh, fully endorse the fact that it's fun. And if you just want to have fun, like by all means play blitz. But if you're, if you are working hard to improve, then as Alex, uh, figured out, um, you, you often are just going to build bad habits. Um, so you mentioned that you play mainly rapid, uh, I don't believe you mentioned like, uh, how much time are you playing? 10 minute rapid, 15 minute rapid. Um, I did play the 10, uh, what is it? 15, 10 on chess.com for a oh, while. Great. And I recently started to move to, uh, I've recently moved to Lee chess. So but I think there it's, was it 10, five or something? Um, okay. and, um, 
Yeah, I mean, maybe that, maybe that's like another another story. But basically, the you know the reason that I moved over actually, funnily enough, was like less about time control and more just that I basically entered a tournament in September, and I found that you know I practiced a bunch of different things, but like it's a very different experience using a physical board. And as someone who learned entirely in two D land, um, it was just like terrifying how strange it felt. And um, the and Lee Chess has like a really not, like uh, uh, on mobile as well has like a really nice um, like three D ish um, chessboard. So yeah, I switched over to there and just go with whatever they call their rapid time time controls. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Yeah, I mean Lee Chess, and also I love their playing interface. But you mentioned um, you mentioned that this 3d thing because i saw you wrote about it as well and i haven't seen that feature so um could, could you explain a bit more like how it works it's still on a screen right it's just yeah a, so go on yeah so um it's so okay so chess.com has has their 3d thing which isn't on mobile to begin with but also it's called real real 3d is the thing that they have and it's really annoying because it actually tries to make it look like a chessboard that's right in front of you but obviously it being on a 2d screen that just like is really actually just disorientating rather than anything else whereas lee chess um you can change i think it's called board geometry or something you can change the settings so that it's in 3d and then once it's in 3d they actually have like i think it's the last um uh the last piece set or whatever is basically the one that they use in all the tournaments here so it's like the sort of um plasticky looking ones and so you can basically, which I, I decided to do, you can basically just set it up so that it looks like you're playing on the like tournament, at least the tournament boards that you get in the UK, um, which sounds ridiculous, but at least in my head, I think it gives me more of a sensation that like what I'm doing is going to translate better to um, when I have to play it over the board. Okay. Yeah. I, and sorry, go on. I, I don't. I don't know if there's like. I don't. I, I don't know if anyone's like actually done much research on like three D versus two D chess, but I do think in like in many other contexts, you would be kind of surprised if um, at least like familiarity didn't benefit you, right? So like while it seems like a really like small thing, it seems odd to me that we basically don't just have it as like the default. For, uh, given that, well, at least yeah, at least for people who want to play over the board. Yeah, I think for people who came up in the the dinosaur age and learn with chess sets, it's kind of easy to switch back and forth. But I've definitely heard a lot of uh, people who learn chess online uh, say, yeah, when I set up a set, suddenly I'm hanging pieces left and right. Yeah. Um, and uh, one thing I wanted to mention is, of course, on this on this podcast a long time ago, uh, maybe you know, year and a half. I don't know exactly how long we we ran ads for Square Off, which is one of the companies that's making these. Um, physical boards like computerized chess sets that you can um, interface with uh, Lee Chess and other chess servers so that you can play on a physical board while you're still playing online. And I, I don't know how many other people uh, signed up for Square Off, but there have been extensive production delays. But I do hear that uh, they're, they're shipping soon. And of course, our recent guest, uh, Tatya Vabrahamian, um, for who works with Bright Labs, they're working on a similar thing that may even be um, 
beat square off to, to delivery to my house. But, and you know, these things, I think they already exist in forms where you can just buy them and get them too. But I, I do feel like this is fertile ground and uh, a lot of smart people are working on sort of improving the product of, uh, you know, um, combining uh, 3D real chess, like not just a 3D screen, but like a physical computerized chessboard with online. And uh, that, that would set up a lot of sort of not just possibilities for, you know, uh, hobbyists like you and I, Alex, but, um, but like even, you know, there could even be elite chess someday uh, involving these sort of interfaces where it would be sort of more of a hybrid between like the endless debate about online professional chess as compared to a uh, to professional. Um, so I don't know if you have anything to add about that, Alex, but I just wanted to, to get that in for anyone who's any listeners who've been wondering. Yeah, I did have a look at those actually. Um, uh, but I think at least in the style that I ended up sort of practicing, it feels as if like speed is actually a huge component. Um, and so I think from what I understand about those boards, they're really good if you want to kind of play games against people. But um if you want to run through 500 tactics in 25 minutes, then like that's not, that's not what they're useful for yet. So like, I think at least for me, it's, it's probably like a really useful for sort of game context, but um, there's so much like powerful software out there now for like taxi training and all the other stuff that um, yeah, that's like, I guess, why I wasn't like, why I didn't buy one, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a really good point. It, it does, it, that does make it more of a challenge for, for training. At minimum, you would want to save it for your, like, your harder puzzles. Definitely don't do be, right. don't do puzzle rush tactics on, <laughs> on a, one of those boards. Um, so you recommend a lot of resources, a lot of, uh, you know, books and uh, chessable courses that you came across. Um, so wh- what was the first thing you got, Alex, that you felt like, all right, this this is what I need? Um, okay, well, I guess first thing, the first thing I got that, I'll, uh, that um, I thought this is what I need and turned out to absolutely not be true, which is a word of advice for any um, absolute beginners is woodpecker method. I found, yeah, I found it like intellectually really well. So I read the Della Maza article that, um, has been mentioned a bunch, um, and it basically kind of sort of rhymed with some of the intuition stuff that I'd seen people do in research, which is basically just like, you know, if you're constantly hanging pieces all the time or can't see basic tactics, you can, you can never win. And, and, and that made sense to me. And then, and then I, I think I was listening to maybe one of your podcasts with, was it, is it Neil Bruce? The, you did the yeah. Woodpecker method review, I think. Um, and, and so it seemed like the sort of, you know, like modern day descendant of that. And so I got the Woodpeck method um, on Chessable. I think that's the reason that I discovered Chessable. Um, and it was just like insanely hard. And I was like, okay, I think I probably got zero right on the easy <laughs> section when I was going through. I'm and, sure you're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I just, and, and so I tried kind of going through again and I found that really difficult. Um, and I was maybe getting some because I'd like m- had some like lingering memory of the positions. Um, but then I was, but you know, after going through it twice, I think probably in January or February, I, um, the easy section, sorry. Um, I just thought that, yeah, I mean, it was just, it was just crazy hard for me. Um, like 
and I wasn't, I couldn't, I was like measuring whether or like how long it took for me to solve like N puzzles or whatever, because um, Chessable gives you that information at the end of your session. And it basically just turned out that like it was having no effect for me because it was just far too difficult. So um, I got tactics time instead, which is like basically super beginner puzzles. It's like mates in one, mates in two, win a piece by taking the de um, defender, blah, 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 these kinds of things. And so that I found like, okay, this is like actually tractable now. Like it's possible that I could it's possible that I could solve these given infinite time. And so maybe I can just get better at solving these. And so that was the first one where, that was the first like set of puzzle books where I, uh, or set of puzzles where I felt like it sort of seemed to be the right level. Um, yeah. Cool, yeah, and I know that uh, Tim Brennan saw that you mentioned Tactics Time in your blog and was happy to see that. So uh, shout out to Tim. Yeah, it's a, a great resource for, uh, for newer players. Um, and what kind of time were you putting in, Alex? Like, um, how many hours per day do you think? Um, so one of the, okay, so um, I, I probably spent maybe between like anything from 20 minutes to say 45 minutes on um, doing puzzles um, in, the, in the first few months. Um, but I think one of the, th and this is where, this is where some of the experience from learning languages came in. It's, it's basically, um, anyone who hasn't used spaced repetition should just absolutely use spaced repetition for anything that they want to learn. It's like in almost any field, just documented to be the best way to like learn and retain stuff. And this is for like for tons of reasons. Um, uh, the fact that you're getting tested on things means that it's much better, uh, much better than if you're kind of like just 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 reading something. Basically, testing is like one of the core components of, of eliciting memory um uh the like spacing effect is is also um uh means, means that you can just cram loads of loads of stuff in um and so it's just super super efficient compared with uh, other methods of learning um but one of the big downsides of space repetition is that um it can be kind of lumpy so like I, anyone who's used chessable or anki or any of the other things i, I use anki for many years um for languages well, you'll notice that basically, let's say you you decide today I'm going to do you know an an hour of puzzles. Well, spatial repetition is going to tell you that tomorrow you need to do an hour of puzzles as well, and pretty quickly you're going to have a bunch more stuff than you can do, and it's an absolute pain in the ass because sorry, um, uh, absolute pain That's because <laughs> because you can't stay on top of the workload that the spatial repetition system is supposed to be giving you, and so what's the point of the space repetition system if you can't stay on top of the workload because you, the whole point is that it's supposed to make life easier by spacing out how frequently you have to see things. And so basically what I found was that it's much better to sort of like orientate yourself on like the lower time bound. So like for me, that would be like 20 minutes a day or something um, than on the higher time bound because some days you'll get, you know, even if you're just even if you're stopping after 20 minutes every day, some days you'll end up doing 30, 40 minutes because of the way that like um, the spacing of the, al the spacing algorithm means that stuff will clump up or whatever. And so, um, uh, so yeah, so basically I aim for trying to do 20 minutes a day, but sometimes if it, if it turns out that, you know, I did a load of problems one day and therefore, 
you know, is set it to be a week in the future, it might, it might all kind of come together in a perfect storm and mean that some days I have like significantly more than that um, to catch up on kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I, would, I was probably spending 20 to 45 minutes, but I quickly realized that it's way better to spend 20 minutes and then just let the algorithm um, fill the gap, <laughs> nice. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, and and I think uh, when we do do a how to chess, we'll go into even we'll go into more detail about um, exactly which settings you prefer and stuff for for yeah. using chessable space repetition because I know you did did a lot of work on that. Um, so was that the total amount of time you were spending per day? Like, what would you say is the average amount you spent per day on all things chess? In since you uh, got into it, Alex. Yeah, good question. Um, I definitely was spending some more time. I was spending more useless time than 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 that. It turned out. So, um, given that I wasn't really I th okay, so basically, I was spending some more time like learning some openings and also um, playing some games. Um, and yeah, I mean, games. I sort of know from my own experience and from the data. There was a really interesting blog post a few weeks ago. Um, which linked to in my blog, which basically just shows that like playing games doesn't make you better. Um, so I, I, I knew that was useless, but it's just the fun bit, right? So why would you not do it? So it's probably yeah. you know, playing well, a couple I'll, of games I'll a game against that. But anyway, go on. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, at least at least for me, it didn't didn't seem to be helping that much. Um, and then I was also learning openings, um, but. Um, probably about the same amount that I was doing taxes. So in, in total, I was probably spending some, somewhere between like an, an hour to an hour and a half a day for, for, for the first few months at least. Um, but I actually really, really regret learning openings. Um, I know everyone tells you that, you that you shouldn't in the beginning, but it's just basically I found like the course that I was doing was kind of interesting, but um, I, it was like more intellectually seductive than productive and when i just played random things instead of the openings that i've learned i i I'd spent a lot of time learning i basically had exactly the same win rate percentages and um and so at least for me it just turned out that like openings were this way of trying to reduce the complexity of the game and it turns out that you can't reduce the complexity <laughs> of the game um, right. at least at my level um and so um yeah I, I so in total i was probably spending like an hour to an hour half a day but i would say like the, the, the only time that I could point to having been actually useful was probably like the 20 to 40 minutes on tactics. Gotcha. Well, the wasted time still counts, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to, and, and we'll get to what you said about openings because we have a, a Patreon listener question about that, but about the playing thing, um, mm. a couple of things. I mean, one thing is like, clearly there's, there's tons of, anecdotes which obviously anecdotes are only anecdotes but there's tons of players who who have learned by playing Hikaru Nakamura yeah. of course being the most famous example um but the other thing is getting back to what you said about sort of the science of learning um you know Dr. Christopher Chabri who's a um, cognitive scientist who's been on the podcast a couple yeah. times um he one of the times he recommended this book make it stick which is sort of like an overview of uh all the science behind learning that that i recently read and they what they wrote echoes what you said about the importance of testing and of course that's sort of the uh the model of testable with space repetition but to me playing is a form of a test as well and in a sense it's a purer form because um you're getting the wide range of all phases of the game you know 
both tactical positions and positions where there's nothing happening and positions where you think there's a tactic, but there's not and positions where um, you don't think there's a tactic, but there is. So um, so to me, it's the ultimate test, but the, the thing is you need to, it needs to feel serious. It needs to feel like a test. Um, right. so I think if you're just playing mindlessly and often that's where it might not help your game, but that's why tournament chess, like, as like Andrew Tang said, when I interviewed him, tournament chess often can be like the biggest turbo booster because once you jump through all these hoops to get to the place, like, um, mm. and you're staring in the face of this like six-year-old or whatever <laughs> you don't want to lose to, like the stakes feel very high. So it, um, you know, the, the, uh, chances of, um, you assimilating whatever lessons are to be learned from that game are much greater than an online game. Right. I mean, in, the, in my first tournament, I lost, um, I blundered a maiden one to a six-year-old who played the Alakine and because uh, I had no idea how to play against the Alakine and whatever. Uh, you know, it happens. But as exactly as you said, it's like burnt into my memory. As, <laughs> right, as <something>. exactly. <laughs> um, which I'll, ne I'll, never, I'll never not understand how that happened. Um, yeah. No, I think, it's I think you make a really interesting point. I listened to that episode. And I think like, okay, so I suppose one thing is, in, at least in the data that um, this guy pulled out of the Lee Chess database, one thing is like it seems like some people are able to do that. So Hikaru Nakamura is you know kind of one of these like outlier data points. But it seems like basically some people are able to learn from um, pattern assimilation through games really rapidly. But for most people, according to the data, the Lee Chess data, it isn't correlated at least in terms of like number of games played versus like span of time played. And so I think like I think those people are the exception, not the rule. And like maybe one of the one of the things you talk about a lot on the podcast is like kids versus adults, right? And there's a really interesting piece of research which looked at child versus adult pattern assimilation by um, and memory through um, uh, in 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 different situations. And so the, the what happens in this study was basically they showed the kids a bunch of things, they showed adults a bunch of things. And then they asked them questions about those things afterwards. And um, it turned out that basically um, because adults use um, what in the chess world, I, I think people call chunking, where they basically apply conceptual knowledge to the experience that they're having. Um, it means that their memory of details, which are like deemed to be irrelevant outside the concept um, is lower. So if you see a load of faces and then I ask you afterwards, like something about the, um, background in the room, you're not likely to have picked up on, um, you're much less likely to have picked up on that than say a child, um, because essentially as an adult, you're just like constantly projecting all the concepts that you've learned onto the experience that you're having. Whereas as a child, you might have noticed that, oh, like actually that, you know, the picture in the room is changing backwards and forwards every time between red and blue and red and blue and red and blue. And so essentially what's happening there is like, kids are learning through like similarity and dissimilarity in uh, like series of objects or experiences, whereas adults tend to be, um, and uh, whereas adults tend to be applying their, the uh, concepts to that experience. And so the fascinating thing is that if you then teach the kid the concept um, and say, look at these objects again, they then perform exactly as well as the adults do in the memory test. And so like there is actually this basically like interference of knowledge with adult learning um, because you have more, because basically as you get older, you have more like conceptual understanding. Um, 
than um, and, and you use that as a heuristic to shortcut through things. So like, I think that's why basically playing from games works for some people and, and not others maybe, or is one, one of the reasons is basically because like in language, I guess, in, uh, yeah, another way to phrase it is like in language, if playing chess is like as an adult is like trying to learn a language and hoping to get better at chess. It's like trying to learn a language by talking to yourself. It's like you are literally just, you are literally just playing through all the concepts that you already have in your brain as opposed and applying the, that conceptual understanding to the game that's in front of you. Whereas as a child, like you're actually, you're much more able, um, maybe because you don't have some of the conceptual knowledge to um, like appropriate the right distinctions between um, the feedback that you're getting. So it's like, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think you're right that there's some circumstances and some people where uh, some people where playing can be really beneficial. But I think for most adults, it's like yeah, it's like learning a language by talking to yourself. Yeah, and it gets to um, you know discussions of neuroplasticity and aging that are you know probably above my pay grade because as I think of the anecdotes that I I personally have gathered about people who've learn primarily by playing. I mean, uh, Braden, Braden Laughlin, uh, Laughlin, uh, adult improver who I interviewed, uh, he, he says he learned primarily by playing also watching a lot of videos, but playing many hours a day. And he's mm. gotten all the way up to like 2200 blitz. He's made amazing progress. Mm. Uh, listeners should definitely, uh, check out that interview if they didn't, if they didn't hear it. Um, but he's also pretty young. He's like 22, you know, right. so he's still, still has that that neuroplasticity i can't think of any examples um of people who learn say 30 and older who just say i only played and i got really good um, right. so so there may be something to that but but again and even something like the leech study i mean obviously we're going to be constrained because they can measure what people are doing on leech right. but they can't measure what they're doing away from leech right. are they playing tournaments are they reading books um uh you know, are they are they drinking? <laughs> are they, you know, smoking weed, whatever it might be. Like, like, how are they spending those other hours, and how is that inter you know interfacing with their chess progress? Um, so, think, go ahead. Sorry, I'm just I'm if uh, I'm just riffing, but I think yeah. I think there's a bunch of interesting stuff here around like. So, okay, so my interpretation of the like adult child neuroplasticity thing is like maybe different to some of the things that I've heard on your podcast before, which is like, it's clearly true that there are like differences in, in adult brains and, and child brains. But I think it's also, we basically know in most fields that like fluid intelligence, like continues to peak beyond childhood. And fluid intelligence basically means the like combination of like your raw, like processing, processing speed of your brain, and the like, um, sort of conceptual, uh, understanding of your brain that can kind of make shortcuts for processing speed. And so I think like it's interesting because I think it's far too easy to say it's easier to learn stuff as a kid because um, you have, you know, your like peak neuroplasticity or, you know, maybe even peak processing speed or whatever it is, like it is when, is when you're a kid. Um, I actually think that's that's only true if you learn in a way that is basically dependent on um those attributes rather than the attributes that you have as an adult. And I'll give you an example of where this really comes in in language learning. So basically, if you learn Chinese or, or Japanese characters as a child, the way that you learn them is through their, um, 
a combination of, well, it's basically rote memorization. So if you're in school in um, Japan or China, more or less, you learn through just like, here's the character for this, you write it out. And so it takes, uh, uh, and you learn more or less also from conceptual simplicity to conceptual complexity. Because if you're a child and you're five, you, you, you are not going to learn the word for dilemma before you learn the word for shoe or whatever, right? Um, and so what that means is that um, it takes kids roughly until they're an adult before they can actually kind of write out most of the characters that they're going to need as an adult to be able to read and write. Um, uh, putting aside to the, fa the fact that there's like a massive literacy issue caused by mobile phones in Asia right now. <laughs> um, but um, what, what, what's interesting about that is, you know, 15 years of rote memorization to learn um, in, in Japan to learn roughly like 2000 um, uh, Chinese characters, which they use in their writing system. Now, there's a guy called Heisig, I think James Heisig, who wrote this book um, called Remembering the Kanji, which is the, the kind of Japanese word for the Chinese characters. Basically, what he what he says is like, hey, if you just use memory palaces, which is this thing where you basically attribute a sort of um, like a part of a story to each subsection of the character, um, you can just piece together all these stories in your brain. And over time, the stories will fade and the meaning of the characters will remain. And in this way, you can basically learn certainly the 2000 Japanese characters that you need to know from a meaning perspective um, in the space of like three months. So, and, uh, and I did this when I was at university kind of out of um, curiosity. And, and so, what, so why, why is that relevant? Well, it basically says, or the, the point of that story is that um, as an adult, the massive advantage that you have is that you don't need to go from conceptual simplicity to conceptual complexity. You can just start with like, what is the most logical or what is the like best way, fastest way that I can learn this information, given that I already understand the, um, given that I already understand lots of things about the world. So for example, uh, to, to me, it's really concrete. The, uh, the character for dilemma in Japanese is a combination of the character for tree and the combination uh, and the character for mouth. Now, like, it's a, so it's a really simple character. And so you, as long as you know the character for tree, which is really simple, the character for mouth, which is really simple, you now also know the character for, uh, or the word for dilemma in Japanese. And so like, as an adult, your ability to, uh, like, uh, to, to learn that information in a different way than you would as a child, which suits your brain, i.e. through memory palacing, space repetition, whatever, is, in, it's, 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 it's just there. And so for me, at least, the the whole like child adult thing is kind of only relevant if you're trying to learn things like you would have learned them as a child. Um, and if you try and if you just think about like, okay, like, what's the most systematic way that I can learn this thing as an adult? Like, of course, you're gonna be better at, at children than learning. Like, it's absolutely, it seems crazy to me, the idea that like, my 10 year old self would have been better than me at learning anything. My 10 year old self had like, zero attention span had like basically didn't know what most words meant like had no sort of ability to like reason about um uh complicated topics and so the idea that the the 10-year-old version of me assuming uh, you know given everything could be better than me at learning something now i just think is is crazy like yes if we're performing some very specific tasks in some very specific way but we just don't have to do that right we can learn in different ways um yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's a great point. No, no, it's a great <laughs> point. And, and when I interviewed, uh, you know, Dr. Vishnu Srikumar, another adult improver and cognitive scientist, uh, you know, he sub subsequently wrote a blog post uh, on Leeches. Shout out to, to Vishnu if you're listening. Um, and he argued a lot of the same things that that 
the the time component um, often gets overlooked. Like these these kids are are basically doing like total immersion in chess quite often. Right. Um, so yes, they have more neuroplasticity. But if we were doing total immersion, especially uh, again, maybe maybe showing my biases, but especially when it comes to the competing in tournaments angle, I mean, you, they're they're playing at least often twice a month, like and just like totally, um, you know, totally enveloped by the experience. Um, it's something that adults rarely can do. Um, so yeah, I mean, we're not going to settle these questions (laughs) right, right here, right now, but I mean, I, I love, I love hearing all of the, the research that you did about it. Um, so Alex, I have a bunch of Patreon questions uh, for you that we should dig into that I think will elicit a lot more sort of about concretely uh, what you've done. But uh, first, we're going to take uh, one more break to hear from our sponsors. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by our old friends at Chessable.com. Hopefully, you know by now about their proprietary move trainer technology that helps you remember tactical patterns as well as opening sequences. Whatever aspect of your game you're looking to work on, there is an excellent chance that Chessable has something for you to help. They're also constantly releasing new courses. In the pipeline currently, they've got an, a lifetime repertoire 1E4 from none other than Anish Giri. And they've got the Ginger GM, Simon Williams, soon to release a treatment of G- legendary Grandmaster Alexi Shiro's Fire on Board, plus so much more. So just be sure to always go to chessable.com and take a look at what's new. Good news, listeners. According to aimchess.com, I'm now only behind on the clock 75% of the time in my Blitz games. That's actually huge progress for me. I'm going to keep working to bring it up, and I recommend you use aimchess.com to address whatever weaknesses you may have in your game, whether it be playing with the white or black pieces, a particular opening, or a particular phase of the game. They give tailored lessons for whatever their algorithm detects, and of course, their algorithm scrapes the games from the major chess player sites themselves in order to tell you what you need. If you decide to subscribe to aimchess.com after checking it out, be sure to use the promo code perpetual30. Details are in the show notes. Check out aimchess.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, and we are back, and we have a, a bunch of uh, listener questions, uh, uh, many of them from Jack Russell. So shout out to Jack, who sent in some uh, just a great list of questions that I'm just going to uh, let let Alex tackle one by one. And for anyone who has not listened to that much perpetual chess, uh, I forgive you. And the way this works is uh, people who uh, donate via Patreon and support the show can uh, submit questions for guests, whether they be um, newer experts of adult learning, like Alex, um, newer to chess, I should say, or, uh, you know, uh, grandmasters, um, such as Daniel King, and uh, the many other authors and elite players that privileged to talk to. So anyway, here is uh, Jack's brief note and then question. So 
Jack says, I'm super excited to hear the interview with Alex. Like him, I came to chess a complete beginner at 47 exactly a year ago. I've had similar improvement, although not quite as dramatic, gaining around 400 points in various platforms and time controls, and now around 1450 Lee Chess Rapid. Unlike him, my approach has been very scattershot and random and a whole year, and I'm still trying to figure out what a systematic approach would look like. Basically, I'm just trying everything my favorite podcast guests talk about, so I'm interested to hear more about his focused approach. I have a few questions. He says, feel free to pick one, um, but I think we'll we'll tackle uh, a bunch of them. Um, so let's start with this one. This one goes back to openings. He says, your blog mentioned that you haven't studi- spent much time studying openings. Do you find playing more system-based openings like the London or Carol Khan with Black to avoid helping to have that kind of study? Or if you could say a bit more about your approach or lack thereof to openings once you kind of... Um, arrived at one alex yeah so um so i don't play as far as i'm aware system-based openings um right now i've just been playing um b3 as white and (laughs) it's gonna love you even more (laughs) (laughs) and um uh knight f6 as black and then a bit of whatever basically the um the reasoning being so when i started out i learned on chessable these opening courses uh called like my first op- or i started to yeah. learn my first opening course for white and i did think the openings that were picked in that were super interesting but basically after a while of learning these things i just checked my win percentages on chess.com and i realized that i was just winning more games with black when i hadn't learned any opening theory at all for black yet and so i was like what's going on here and I think there's a couple of things I realized. One is just that, like, basically, I almost felt like I, so the openings in that book were, like, really aggressive, which I is a, like, really fun to play, but basically encourage at some point you for you to, like, sacrifice and go for a checkmate. And me just, like, not really knowing what I was doing, I almost felt like the whole game was on a timer, which is, like, I need to basically figure out how I can, like, sacrifice this piece and checkmate them while I'm down material. Otherwise, I'm just going to lose the game. And so it was just, like, I basically just found that um, I was sort of getting into just a really weird mode of playing where I was like losing unless I was winning, if that makes sense. Like, um, and I and I would win some games with these like awesome feeling, you know, checkmates where I was downloading material, but I would lose equally as many games by just like actually it turned out that it wasn't the right time to sap that piece, and I just couldn't tell the difference between those two things. Um, and so given that I had was just getting worse results with the stuff that I'd learned, I was like, okay, well, I'll just play a bunch of random things for, um, a, you know, a couple of weeks and just see what happens. And it turned out that, you know, basically my ELO didn't change. And so lo and behold, it turns out that like what openings I was playing was not the reason that I was winning or losing. It was like other stuff. Um, and, you know, I think the other big thing, the other big change in my reasoning here was like I went to do my first tournament and basically all the games where I got the openings that I'd prepped, um, uh, I, you know, felt great. And I felt like, you know, I won because of the opening that I prepped. And then all the games where I like they played something random, like this kid who played the Alakine against me. And I just basically like blundered a one move checkmate, like, you know, and within 10 moves or something. Like, I, I kind of also just realized, ah. Oh, I realized from that experience, at least, that like it's super advantageous to just be like not in anyone's book and then like getting a game of chess 
um, and not worrying about whether or not you can remember the like 15th move of some sequence. Um, and so I then thought about, okay, well, how do I do that? And I looked on Lee Chess and I just like basically made a list of like some uncommon but sound beginnings, e.g. E B3. Um, and then I worked out how many moves it takes before you get into the like almost zero probability of happening. Um, I, I think less than 0.5% probability of happening conditional on you playing all your moves. Um, I, I, so I, I looked up how long it takes for the lines to get there. And I think it's basically like seven moves um, conditional, conditional on you playing your moves. So like after about seven moves, like with more or less any opening, you get out of, uh, you get to the realm of like less than 0.5% probability of that position occurring um, based on the Lee Chess database for like like rapid games plus or, or, or maybe blitz games plus. And so I was like, ah, oh, I'm just investing all this time in learning stuff where like basically the odds of me getting anything after move seven are, is just like almost zero. And um, so since then, I just like set, I, I picked some stuff that sounded fun. So I picked B3 because like, yeah, it's like probably not in anyone's book. Um, and also I'll get a game. And then I picked like the Alakine because that kid beat me with it and the Benko course of Chessable. And then I set it to like move six or seven and then learn the quick starter and then just forget about it. That's like, great. Yeah. I think there's a there's a lot to be admired about that approach. First of all, I love that you still incorporated some analytics, like even when you're like sort of looking for a way to, to not do openings, that it's still uh, data driven in a sense. And I think if a lot of people below your level um, took a similar approach, they would come to a, a similar conclusion. And I do think B3 is like a, a fantastic choice. I have to uh, I have to admit, I haven't studied uh, Grandmaster Adiban's course, but my guess is that um, there's almost no traps Black can play. Like if you go B3, like right. whether, whether or not it's a known position, and by the way, what Alex was referring to with looking at the data for anyone who doesn't know how to do that, um, if you go to, like for example, on Leechess, if you go to analyze your game, um, you look at the opening tree at the bottom, or you could also go to learn and then study and then input a game, and then you can filter um, for uh, different ratings. So you can look for your rating level. So what Alex is describing is a way of seeing like what moves are faced in practice. But even though Alex is like at move seven, finding completely fresh positions, I think if you go B3 from a practical perspective, um, Black just can't make a threat really that right. soon. So basically you're on your own from move one, which I, yeah. I do think has a lot of merit. Now for Black, my personal opinion, Alex, I mean, I admire the spirit. I personally wouldn't recommend the Alakine. I might go with something like the Pierce or the Pribble where you yeah. go like D6 and C6 and Knight B D7 and E5 or something like that. Yeah. Um, even the modern, shout out to Vieco at Chessable. Um, but Anyway, it's not that important. I, 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 I endorse the overall sort of philosophy of at least to get to your level. It's not that openings couldn't help, but there's an opportunity cost to anything you spend time yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. And, and as your data showed, uh, it's not the best use. I think, I think the hard thing about it is like, you know, if there's something that's so seductive about the idea that you can take this incredibly complex game and then turn it into, well, if I just memorize this stuff, then I'll win games. But the, the reality is that certainly, you know, and if you if you look at the sort of grandmaster databases, it's true that, that, you know, seven moves actually becomes many more moves. And you do have to have more memorization because people are more consistent in playing the most critical thing. But, you know, I, I just don't think certainly until you're at a very high level, you can 
reduce the complexity to I need to memorize these moves because you have to be able to punish deviations and punishing deviations comes from like understanding what what the opportunities are in the game to begin with and so like at least for me it was like I really really wanted to be able to just like you know go and beat all my friends by having learned the like special magic opening but then when they do something that I that I you know wasn't in the course that I did and it's not in the course that I did because it's a stupid move but it's not a stupid move for a reason that I can punish then it doesn't matter that I learn all of this stuff right it's just like and so, yeah, I think like trying to escape the fact that you're actually basically, unless you're at a very, very high level, you're just going to have to be able to play chess well. Um, like, I don't know, obviously you have to do that at a high level, but like, it, it's just like you're going to win games because you can play chess well, not because you've memorized like 14 moves deep on the most critical line. Like you're never going to get it. You're just never going to get it, like statistically. So yeah, just like worry about playing chess well. And it took me like, until my first tournament to realize that that's what I needed to do, to be honest. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I do want to highlight one, one important point, Alex. So I, I, you know, 90% agree with you, maybe even a hundred percent, but for people like Jack who are listening, I do just want to stress that, that, that what we're saying about avoiding memorizing openings, say below 1500, doesn't mean that you should ignore opening principles. It's, uh, it's very important to build the foundation. And of course, uh, Books like Logical Chess Move by Move are really good about drilling that in. Or if you prefer a video series, something like uh, Naroditsky or um, John Bartholomew's Climbing the Rating Ladders and uh, John Bartholomew's Chess Fundamentals. I mean, if you look for something opening-oriented in those videos, I mean, they they definitely will, will get you the sort of fundamentals you need. But what I've, what I've observed in players um, around your guys' level and below is... Um, a a strong propensity to disobey opening principles let's say there's there's some sort of disconnect where like if you ask someone you know different people tout different like uh you know different chess fundamentals but let's say like what chess steps calls you know the the golden rules move your center pawns bring out your knights and bishops and castle your king for example like if you ask someone you know what are the opening golden rules you know there are people rated a thousand online who could immediately say that but then they're moving a side pawn or more commonly the big one is moving the same piece twice like they they know that they're not supposed to move the same piece twice in theory but in practice they see a way to f- threaten a fork that doesn't do anything else um and they make the move that threatens the fork that you know any any decent player is going to stop the fork and you just wasted time and anyone who fell for the fork was going to fall for the fork later so like in a in a meta sense you're you're you've taken a step back in your overall win probability. Um, so anyway, just a quick aside, because uh, mm. that is, if you just constantly are thinking about chess fundamentals, um, when you're playing the opening, that's the important thing at the beginning level, in my opinion, not um, not which opening you're playing. But what you say about the seductive aspect is definitely true. Um, and again, chess is supposed to be fun and like to pull off one of uh, Eric Rosen's um, you know, Stafford Gambit tricks, like, you know, if, if, if that's what you enjoy most in chess, then there's totally nothing wrong with that. Um, but it, it is like, 
from a mathematical perspective, I agree with what Alex's data revealed, and I think a lot of people would would find that. Um, so anything else on openings before we go to the next question, Alex? I think your point earlier around traps is is, is really interesting. So like, I'm a big fan of um, like Simon Williams' YouTube content. I think it's just funny. It, it's just like, it's funny to watch someone so good play stuff that's like sort of supposed to be objectively bad and then beat people from what appears to be an objectively bad position. Um, and I think there's one thing that he, that doesn't, I think, apply at my level, but I think is like um, really interesting nonetheless, is is just the sort of idea of like practical complexity versus like sort of theor like theoretical complexity. And you, you know, you're talking, you said earlier, like B3 doesn't have a lot of traps in it. And I think that, you know, that's one of the thing. that's one of the things that I appreciate is because I think when you're in an ideal world, you'd, you know, you'd basically, I think, be posing your opponent's problems, which are reasonably difficult to solve if you don't already know the answer. And if you can't solve them, create grave problems. But I find that the same happens to me just about as much as just about as often as it happens to my opponents when I go for things that are incredibly sharp. Um, and so I think that idea of like traps is, yeah, is super seductive, um, but probably at least at my level, better to just try and avoid because you sort of win as many games as you lose trying to take advantage of them, if that makes any sense. Whereas like yeah. Sam Williams can like play his way out of the the like idiotic position that results you just get beat you know yeah i mean the stafford gambit in particular it's it's developed like its own theory at the under 1500 <laughs> level you know like because it's like all the eric rosen prodigies are battling each other and developing like their own 11 moves of theory <laughs> and in any other opening they're just uh you know fending for themselves in uh in deep waters so uh i definitely get what you're I definitely get what you're saying, but but again, um, again, whatever people enjoy, I'm yeah. fully, I'm fully on board with. Um, so let's get to uh, the next um, the next question from Jack. So Jack asks, he says, "It seems like rating your rating gains come in big chunks, or sorry, it seems like rating gains come in big chunks, followed by a relatively flat period and then another big jump. Do you feel like this is because it takes a while?" for a certain skill or knowledge to accumulate that simply makes you better than other players at a certain level? Or do you think it's a confidence issue of being able to believe you are better? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I would encourage anyone who hasn't listened to it to go back and listen to Logazar's episode with you um, because he talks a little bit about this as well. Um, and um, I don't quite understand. I, I think I have a, like a similar experience Um but I don't quite understand the sort of mechanisms. I don't un I quite understand the mechanisms of, of kind of what's ha actually happening there. I suppose like maybe the easiest, maybe the easiest sort of heuristic you could have is like what's going on is just at least from a sort of pattern perspective, it's plausible to me that like, it's plausible to me that um, it takes 
time for your brain to develop like proper fluency in a pattern but once it has developed that proper fluency in the pattern you sort of immediately get the benefits of it as it were so like you know in the language context it would be like take some time before you can immediately summon the word in the right context whenever you need to summon the word in the right context but then once you have it's kind of there right and so but but it has almost like a like an absolute utility it's like before you can summon the word in any in 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 any context it's you obviously can't use it in any context and then once you can you you, you can so it's like yeah i don't really i definitely experienced a similar thing and i don't really understand exactly why but i think it's probably something yeah something to do with like just like how well the information has been like assimilated into like the subconscious or something like that yeah that that's a great analogy and i do think that there's probably a confidence element as well but i i echo what you say about not really knowing but also my my intuition is it's it's more based on sort of um unknown uh you know neuroscience reasons rather than confidence but there's probably yeah. some interplay some interplay between the two i think maybe this touches on a point that people bring up a lot on your podcast which is this sort of like memorization versus understanding and um i think in some sense it's like you know especially if you're doing lots of tactics puzzles on chessable or other places um you know i guess particularly on chessable it's like oh well you're just memorizing things does that mean you actually understand them or not and i think there's like an element to that which is like kind of a moot point which is like you there's probably a period where if you you know if you memorize a thousand like with a queen mate in ones or whatever there's probably a point where you can you're it's easier for your brain to memorize each individual puzzle than it is for it to understand the heuristic and that but there's a certainly once you get to a thousand your brain's just going to understand how queen mate in ones work right like it's easier for your brain to just be like screw it i'm going to learn the actual thing that i need to learn in order to be able to apply this across contexts and so i think that like maybe this speaks to this memorization understanding point which is like in the beginning you're sort of like probably doing the action of ideally through understanding but you're, you're probably like doing the action of memorization but then like quickly you end up doing the action of understanding which is probably the more likely to transfer to 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 like rating gains or whatever you want to call it fake it till you make it basically <laughs> Um, okay, we've got one more Patreon question, Alex, and this one is from Alex Friedman. Um, and I, I'm based on your blog post. I think you will have some good uh, insights here. Um, he says, hi, Alex, I'm much better at solving tactics than at not blundering during an actual game. What helped you improve in that? Was it just more tactics or was it a different kind of work on your thought processes? Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I... I, I guess this like comes back to the very beginning of the conversation, which is just like I'm sort of objectively still a pretty bad player, so um, I still blunder regularly in really like heinous, simple ways. Um, so I don't necessarily think that I've solved this problem, um, but I would say that actually one thing that's really underrepresented, and I do think has helped me at least understand how not to blunder, is um, just like defensive puzzles. Um, there's in the Susan Polgar series, the how to learn chess the right way. The third book is basically just defensive puzzles. And in the same way as like, you know, you have to understand what a pin is or like helps to understand what a pin is 
to to be able to do pins. Um, there's also, there's just loads of there's loads of defensive concepts that I just like didn't understand um, until someone explained them to me. Right, so um, I think I would really wholeheartedly recommend like actively trying to just work on um, like defensive orientated puzzles. Um, it's much less fun, but they're also like much less uh, much more difficult. Um, and so I think there's something that's kind of like fascinating about, yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some, again, it's like something really seductive about the idea of like, you know, getting really good at checkmating people, but um, this, it's much more difficult and in a way much more interesting to uh, be able to understand, like, or be, to be able to put into words how not to get checkmated. Um, yeah, I, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily very good at it, but uh, I do, I, I, I at least helps to have the vocabulary. Yeah, and and I was really glad to see you highlight that in your blog post because I'm a big advocate of that the third volume in Susan Polgar's series, uh, in particular. And of course, as I mentioned when I interviewed FM uh, Peter Giannatos in his new uh, book in chess book course, everyone's first chess workbook. He also has some defensive puzzles that are uh, helpful. And the third resource, of course, as always, is the chess step workbooks. Um, they have a blend of uh, tactics and defensive puzzles, especially as you move up from, you know, step two to step three. And and so it goes. Um, but I, I definitely agree uh, that that uh, those are good resources. And you could try um, you could try Alex, Alex F, who sent the email, you know, incorporating some sort of uh, checklist uh, to try to sort of build uh, build a good good thought pattern in terms of uh, making sure that you don't you uh, spot your opponent's tactics as well as your own. But right. uh, but it's a constant, you know, it's just a natural, it's just naturally more challenging for some reason. I think one thing that I found really interesting in that book, um, which kind of, which is also maybe like slight relief from the problem of like what happens when you blunder a piece is that the, it, it, it spends some time on things like, um, uh, Levy, call, Levy calls like danger levels or, you know, other sort of variations of these things, which like kind of get you out of the position from which you've blundered. And so I think like, certainly when I started at chess, I was just like, oh God, I blundered a piece. Whereas like, it's a really complicated game. And so often you can create enough complexity that the blunder goes away. Um, like not all the time, but just but at least some of the time. And so I, I feel like that was a major change in like how I thought about um, how how I thought about what moves I could and couldn't play, I suppose, or like or once I blundered, whether I thought that the game was over, because it just, I mean, yeah, it just teaches you how to create additional complexities such that maybe the game isn't completely over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Alex, this has been amazing. So many great in, insights. Um, I think uh, people will, will greatly enjoy this. I do have one more sort of broad question, you know, as we start to wrap up, which is like, what's next? I mean, are, are you still full throttle, uh, full steam ahead studying chess? And, and if so, like, what, what's your plan in terms of uh, maybe competing and uh, what resources you'll be using? Yeah, so uh, I am planning to, well, I have done so far, um, I'm, I'm planning to do like a tournament every month. And then at Great. the moment, I'm just, um, yeah, doing like 20, 30 minutes a day of tactics. Um, and then 
I'm kind of just hoping that it will continue to work. Um, yeah, um, I presume that it will like taper off at some point, but it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it's quite tapering off yet. <laughs> so yeah, that that that's the that's the plan. It would be really cool to be like objectively like good at chess. I would be really excited about that. But I'm also aware that like it seems quite unlikely um, from what uh, you know from the outside view of like whether it's possible to do that when you're older. So I, we'll yeah, I mean, I think it's doable. It's just you've got to invest in the process, and like it could be ten years. You know, right? Um, it's, it's so it's uh it's all it's such a long road that it's better better not to think about it too much which it seems like is kind of the approach you're taking but hearing you mention like 30 minutes a day i feel like a lot of people who get bitten by the chest bug like they just kind of plunge in and they're spending like three four hours a day so i'm just curious is there like a life constraint or other interests or like uh why not more not not that i'm advocating i'm more curious yeah, I mean, I think it's like, don't get me wrong, sometimes when I have more time, I do spend more time, um, usually just um, on games or something. Um, but I think basically because the method that I use is really heavily focused around space repetition, you just get punished for spending more time like doing the thing that's actually useful. Like if I do an hour today, I just have to spend more time tomorrow and I might not have time tomorrow. And so, um, you know, there are, there are like some ways ar around this to an extent, but like, I guess like one of the disadvantages of Chessel is that they don't like allow you to put holiday days in and stuff like that. And so I don't want to be spending three hours a day on Christmas, like <laughs> doing, doing chess. Right. So, right. you know, and I, and I, you know, and I, you know, and I do have like other way, yeah, other ways to, to spend more time in it. So I guess like if I have more time, like maybe it counts as maybe I was playing some games or something, but I guess I just don't see that as like, very useful or, or like, at least it doesn't factor into like how I think about, like practice, should we say? Okay. And have you done any offline learning? Have you read any uh, paper books? I mean, obviously you're an avid reader, but chess-wise, no, I haven't. Um, is the short answer? Any? any <laughs> what's the main? What's the main reason? I think, like, I I think I have like I have very good evidence from chess and um, other things that I've learned through um, like similar methods for what works for me and what is sustainable. And I could kid myself that like reading would be one of those things, but I've just never really been one for reading books. And so it's just like, I guess I just know myself, right? Like I'm much more, I just know that I'm much more, although it's, for many people, very boring. Like, I, I'm just much more enamored with the like, with you know, like processes of like efficiency uh, and like feeling like I'm able to do in 20 minutes what takes other people two hours. And unfortunately, like I know that it will take me two hours to read a book, like it will take other people two hours to read a book. And so it just doesn't feel quite as glamorous as the idea of, you know, um, taking a shortcut. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it's good to, to know one's, you know, know one's proclivities and sort of, uh, design a plan, um, around I think, it. I think like, it's funny cause like I, I, there's a really interesting podcast, um, 
let me find the name of it. Um, it it's um, a, which, which was about games and, and the reasons that people play games. And um, and uh, essentially made the distinction in this podcast between like achievement oriented games and um, struggle oriented games. And um, I think um, uh, so. It's Sean Carroll's Mindscape Science Society Philosophy Club ah, Culture and yeah. Arts. And uh, the inter- interview is uh, I might not say it right, but um, episode one six nine Thai Nguyen on um, games, art, value, and agency. And um, basically, I think just the thing that I love about this experience is like. I started off being really bad. I'm still not good, but I feel like I'm able through like design of process to um, like, you know, get better than my friends and stuff like that. And, and so I feel like there's part of it, which sadly is like, yeah, like somewhat attributed to chess is a really amazing game and it's really fun to play. But there's part of it for me, which is also just like, I like the sensation of like being able to get better at things quickly and like to design a mechanism for doing that. So the game for me is not necessarily chess. The game for me is like, how can I become really good at this arbitrary thing to like sim- simplify my and satisfy my sense of ego um, uh, or, or whatever, right? And, and so I think that's why like, I'm much more interested in a way in like the process and the knowledge. Interesting. Yeah, and definitely that, that gets to why I think the aforementioned Elijah's Logazar interview was was one of your favorites. He's definitely so systematic and uh, so so uh, well read on the topic of um, of learning. Um, so yeah, Alex, this has been amazing. Um, you know, you you've got so many interesting thoughts about this. Uh, any uh, any plans of like future blog posts or YouTube channels or any uh, more content uh, along these lines? Um, I might do a similar write-up on um, learning languages and then like something kind of maybe more um, generalized um, in, in, in the sort of coming coming months, but like nothing specifically for chess. To be honest, I, I, I feel like almost embarrassed that I'm even here talking about chess, just given that like, you know, <laughs> like, like 1500 relative to the, the scope of the people that you have on this podcast is like kind of absurd. Um, so I hope that the next chess blog I write will be one that actually earns my place amongst the, um, at least the lower end of like, there's like what, at least better than one person um, that you've had um, <laughs> who, who regularly plays. Um, yeah, so I think that'll be the next thing that I write about chess. Well, from a <laughs> chess strength point of view, you you may be right, but I think that uh, from anyone who's heard the interview, no, everyone will understand why why we were privileged to have you on the podcast because you you've uh you know pulled together a lot of uh great observations about uh how to get better at this uh this silly beautiful game um so um for the aforementioned future blog post like alex what's is there a way to just subscribe to it i know you have a twitter account um what's what's the best way for people to keep up with anything else you uh you may um share uh i think my website has uh, if you go on alexcrompton.com, you can see random blogs that I do, or you know, subscribe on your RSS reader. There's maybe like a form on there for subscribing to that, but otherwise, yeah, maybe just. Unfortunately, I'm not very active on social media and stuff, so maybe just like check the website if you want. <laughs> okay. or, or you can email me, which is alex at alexcrompton.com, and I'll give you 
the latest. Great. I'm sure I'm sure you'll get a few emails. And what do you have going on professionally right now, Alex? So you you doing the uh, glo- the digital nomad thing? Uh, not quite digital nomad. COVID definitely put so. Um, yeah, COVID definitely put a, a stop on that. So in 2019, I left Entrepreneur First, which um, uh, was really good for a while. Did some of the well, did, did some traveling, and then COVID happened, and um, uh, settled in Amsterdam. But I, I think my COVID experience probably mirrored lots of other experiences where um, it just ruins the relationship with the place that you are in because you spend all of your time in a cubicle in it. Uh, and so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm sort of like in between places at the moment and, um, professionally. So after EF, I, I, I did a startup, um, which sadly, um, didn't work out. Um, and I spend kind of now over the last few months, um, have spent my time kind of, I guess, like doing music, seeing, seeing friends. I'm back in London at the moment where most of my friends are. So, um, yeah, I guess, I, you know, I do a bit of consulting here and there, but I'm not like working full time or anything yet. Um, ideally, I'd like become a musician, but I'm sort of almost like reluctant to even say that out loud because it's just, you know, it's like saying I'd like to be the tooth fairy, but we'll, 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 we'll see. Um, yeah. Cool. What, what instruments do you play? Um, well, I'm, I'm kind of mainly interested in writing songs, but um, yeah, I can play, I suppose, like the usual gamut of like guitar, piano um, and and like making things on computers. Cool. Awesome. Well, well, good luck in, uh, in, in everything, Alex, music, chess, and, uh, and, and everything else, languages, and the list goes on. This is, this has been amazing. Um, look, look forward to see, uh, what you, what you share next. Thanks for, thanks for having me. It's genuinely, uh, yeah, as I said, like both equal parts, embarrassing. And also just like, I, yeah, I felt like, you know, it's, something that i can i mean like pro, yeah it's it's, it's a, i wish chess was more popular but at least amongst like one friend that i have or maybe two friends that i have who also play they'll think it's maybe the coolest thing that's ever happened in my life so uh, i'm very excited <laughs> to be here <laughs> awesome all right well that's a good note to end on thanks alex um and uh and we hope to catch up in the future thanks very much Perpetual Chess is proud to be a member of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their sports and pop culture related podcasts as well. I also, as always, would like to thank Matthew Passy for producing the show. Without Matthew, Perpetual Chess would not exist. And I want to thank everyone who listens to the show, whether it be on your own without telling anyone about it, keeping it secret, or if you're helping to spread the word, all the better, whether it be telling a friend about a particularly impactful interview or whether it be writing a positive review online, all of that stuff helps get the word out and helps Perpetual Chess continue to grow. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those that provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible in its current form. And I would like to give uh, special thanks to the following people and entities. Here comes the list. Uh, Chessable.com, David Lazarus of Lasman Chess, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adaptive Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porto, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell, 
I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson, I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Tharwar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Hampus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oplin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Michael Sullivan, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nace Twitch channel, Perry McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Rick Rivas, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a Chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam, and I also would like to thank the following, Hashtag ChessPunks, who are the adult improvers on Chess Twitter, Ace Vallega, Adam Fowler, Adam Johansson, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Gruber, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Bruno Johnson, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadi, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens, of Rose City Chess in Portland, the Chess Dojo, Chess for Charity, Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Eric Baldwin, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Mayo Perea, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letard Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Schut, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Banastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jay Tuttle, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeff Davis, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Horland, Jerry Wells, Jesse DeCumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Jones, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almaguar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfellow, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fridell, I am Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Reiferth, Lars Wiesen, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emelyanova, aka Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Butolovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, 
Matt Ferrari, Matthew Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Goble, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, Pablo Davila, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passan, and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited in Switzerland, um, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard McCormick, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Samson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malagu, The Say Chess YouTube Channel and Publishing Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwater, Sergey Makagon, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, Stephen Miller and Tom George, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, Zachary Hoskin, and Zhivkor Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.